quando era piccolino papà tutta la gente mi è timorata con lui non ci volevo parlare e se ne allontanava schifata papà non era brutto però studiava tre poche si in vista quando ero culero perché papà era un convinto comunista Season 2! <laughs> Welcome! Hello, hello! Welcome to Rising with the Tide podcast. I'm Skander. I'm joined by Jamie, as always. How are you, Jamie? I'm, I'm good. I'm I'm pumped for this one. Yeah. This, this is my thing. Like, this is, like, there's my thing, and then there's my, like, real, like, proper thing inside that, and we're actually doing that as well. Like, this <laughs> is really my thing. I'm super excited we can call this uh, season two finally. Actually, this is like the first episode, I think, that we can say welcome to season two. Uh, is this officially the, but it's not officially the first one. No, it's it's not the first, but it's the first time that we get to talk about it, at least because um, yeah. as, as you're listening right now, uh, season two will have already begun. But as we're talking now on the 4th of March, uh, season two is still this distant little um, spoiler alert thing that, that we keep uh, putting out every now and then on social medias. Uh, I'm really excited that we have our website up and running now, risingwiththetide.org. Uh, for all of you who want to find out our episodes, our infographics, which we do based on uh, scientific papers and published reports, and uh, of course our audio essays, which the first of the series should be out by the time you're listening, uh, Belgium uh, history of the far right from 1800s to today. And uh, finally, they potentially soon some stills and vids for uh, a documentary that I'm working on here on uh, development issues in Costa Rica. So super, super excited. It's like a whole new chapter for us. Uh, it should be a blast. So let's get to this. Today we have Nico Pizzolato, Senior Lecturer in Global Labour Studies at Middlesex University in London, and John Holst, Assistant Professor of lifelong learning and adult education at Penn State. Both of you, thank you so much for coming. Welcome. Yeah, thank thanks so much for inviting thank us. Thank you, thanks a lot. So um, maybe we can get right into it and um, just kind of make sure our listeners know why both of you are here. Um, as in, what what did you do to deserve this spot? <laughs> What kind of what kind of studies not, have you I, both done? No, no, it's a terrible way to We're not there it. yet, Skander. <laughs> That's not the right. Would you guys want to tell us a little bit about your background, um, your studies up to this point, and what kind of work you've been doing through the years? Okay, so um, I can start. Uh, again, thanks for the invitation. It's really exciting to, to talk about uh, what we are going to talk about today. Um, so the way I earn my spot here today, I think, is because I, I, I wrote a first book, uh, which is called uh, kind of where kind of grand title challenging global capitalism. But what we really talk about uh, is it's a sort of comparative and transnational story of social protests in Detroit and Turin. And, uh, and, and through that study, I uh, encountered and kind of study for the first time a bit more in depth, uh, the thought of, of Gramsci. Um, and, um, and, and especially his approach uh, to Fordism. Um, following that, that book, uh, I was approached by an editor some years later to write uh, something. At the time, was, I was working in a, in a department of work-based learning, which is basically adult education. And uh, that editor suggested uh, a book on, on Gramsci and, and uh, education. And eventually I came into contact with 
drawn with an aspartame that failed. And so out of this interest project, co-edited together, uh, so it you know, was eventually released. Uh, so my, my interest is in issues of labor, especially in a kind of a global perspective. Uh, I'm interested in the kind of, kind of complex fact uh, behind what we consume and the, and the conflict that arises from those labor relationships. I don't want to interrupt. Um, your connection's a bit uh, funny at the moment. You may have to... Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks. Um, John, do you want to go ahead? Uh, sure. Um, so I'm associate professor in lifelong learning and adult education. Uh, my uh, academic uh, schooling is in adult education, and my professional, original professional practice is in adult education as well. Um, starting in um, community-based organizations in Chicago, particularly in Latinx communities, um, and. Um, I got interested in Antonio Gramsci because I'm interested in uh, critical, critical approaches to adult education and education generally. My first academic job was actually in a department of curriculum and instruction where we had a doctorate in critical pedagogy. And I was working, actually I was working a lot with um, uh, elementary and secondary principals and teachers. Um, and Antonio Gramsci has been pretty foundational for the work in critical pedagogy, looking at the extent to which um, schools reproduce social inequalities and the extent to which there can be alternative practices that challenge that. And so in the history, sort of in the development of critical pedagogy, Gramsci's concepts of um, civil society in the state and where do you place schools um, and also hegemony and counter hegemony, the role of intellectuals uh, that he talks about is important for um, thinking about alternative approaches to schooling. So, um, but Gramsci has also been very important in adult education because Gramsci himself was an adult educator um, working through the political organizations that he was a member and founder of um, doing educational work. And so in our field of adult education, Gramsci is quite important. And so that's sort of where my interests lie in terms of um, work on Antonio Gramsci. Okay, nice. Um, well, I guess we could just dive straight in with a quite a general question. Education generally is seems to be a at least in the UK, and I, I gather to a large extent in the US as well, it's generally generally regarded as um, a technical investment, an, a sort of investment in your human capital to um, to raise your stakes in the in the competitive labour market once you uh, once you finish your education. And that sense, it's kind of it, it's kind of regarded as quite neutral on a political level. Would you challenge that? Would you say that educational institutions are actually more important than that in the actual shape of society outside of conventional politics? Um, I think Gramsci would have thought about that type of conceptual education of education that you just mentioned in terms of seen as an instrument of social mobility 
as a very kind of narrow instrument that was really all within what uh, bourgeois uh, ideology of society would want us to think of, of as education. And I'm using bourgeois the way because that's the language that he, he would have used, uh, I, I guess. I think Gramsci helped us to think of education in terms of generally changing the mind of, a, of, a, of the mass of people and making them aware of what are the sort of underlying norms and, and, and ideas and, and structure of societies which we often take for granted. And, um, and that's why he, he uh, would consider education, and here John will be able to talk much more about this, in terms of much more of than what happened ju just in, in, in terms of schooling or formal kind of educational uh, institution, but just more, much more in, in general terms, uh, you know, that relationship of, uh, of yes, as I said, changing, changing minds. Um, and, and uh, becoming critically aware of the context, first of all, historical, uh, but also you know, the actual societal context in which we live. And I totally subscribe, I have to say, to that uh, view um, of Gramsci. Yeah, I think you know, in adult education, we all, it was actually my uh, chair of my dissertation who you know, always talked about learning for earning and that in the field of adult education, one of the things we saw, I, mean, I guess it's always been there, but there was really a push um, in say the uh, 1980s um, forward. And I know this is the, similar in the UK as well, at least I, I think it is from talking to UK colleagues, this general orientation of adult education, which has a history of being um, at least not wholly, but a large part being based in um, community-based practices, um, taking into consideration the needs of communities and developing curriculum and classes, and, um, and that there was a push, greater and greater push towards this sort of learning for earning uh, paradigm, Jamie, that you sort of stated in your question. Um, and um, so there's, you know, there's, been a pushback on that in terms of trying to return in adult education, returning adult education to its more social justice or radical adult education um, uh, origins uh, and basing it in, in working class uh, communities, neighborhoods. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think uh, in, you know, in general, this, I think I would agree with Nico that Gramsci had a you know, really broad notion of looking at education. And when I say education, I really mean schooling, um, looking at schooling and its sort of broader role in terms of shaping um, the direction of societies and, and preparing uh, people for certain places within the labor process. Um, you know, I think we could really dive into how then um, he doesn't ignore the important role that schooling can play in preparing people for the workplace, but on whose yeah. terms, um, I think is sort of a big question that he would, he would pose, um, you know, who's directing the process and really who ought to be directing the process. So um, 
think those are big questions. If I may add just something very quickly, I, I think the other, the other question for, for Gramsci would be um, not educating for a job, but educating to rule society. So a, a big issue is how you educate a different class within society, which is not traditionally being the ruling class to the task of governing society. And, um, and I, I think about you know, this, this approach whenever I hear you know, in the UK education, I, I don't know whether John, what kind of uh, language you have in, in the US, but we talk about employability. So it's a big term uh, these days in, in UK in education. Uh, in terms of providing uh, um, students in, in universities with a skill to be employable, which I think is, you know, it's, it's totally fine. You want to be employable again, degree. But that, of course, you know, creates uh, the, the view that, uh, that the, the goal of education is that. Um, I just want to take a quick sidestep from this, but of, of course, we'll, we'll come back to this. Um, just for our listeners who might not be familiar with Antonio Gramsci, would um, I, I don't know John or Nico would like to maybe uh, give a brief overview of who Antonio is and um, kind of his role maybe in Italy uh, at his time, um, his uh, his works maybe just just a very brief overview uh, so that we can kind of go on from this with everyone knowing who Antonio Gramsci is. Nico, that probably be a good question for you to start. Well, with. I can I can start um, off. So Gramsci was um, uh, a politician and an intellectual thinker who um, was born in the late 19th century, 1891 to be precise, and lived roughly, let's say, in the first third of the of the 20th century. And he died in 1937 uh, in prison. He was incarcerated by the fascist regime for his political activities and for his ideas. Um, so uh, as an Italian, the way I first uh, met Gramsci, the, the way Gramsci is better known in Italy, where I come from, is as a, as a politician, as a founder, uh, one of the founders of the Communist Party in Italy, which in fact was founded 100 years ago. We have been celebrating the 100 years anniversary this, this year. Um, uh, and, and so someone very influential, you know, in that, in that political history of that more or less corresponds to the sort of um, young years of, of Gramsci, which Gramsci moving from his native India, uh, which was a very much of a kind of rural environment, to, uh, to Turin, uh, which at the time was the, one of the most industrialized city in, in Italy and, and in Europe, uh, he embraced uh, socialism and he became uh, part of the kind of intellectual and political vanguard of the left uh, in Italy. Um, he was writing at the time, but mainly as a, as a journalist. Uh, he was an editor, he was a journalist, uh, and, and a lot of his writing at the time was responding to kind of current events, current political events. Uh, so that's, that's how I knew uh, Gramsci for a long time. Um, then later I found out that, uh, especially outside of Italy, Gramsci was better known for the, his last period of his life, uh, which started in, in uh, 1926 when he was imprisoned and sentenced to a long 
um, sentence in, in, in prison. And while in prison, he wrote his famous um, um, notebooks, which became the prison notebooks, uh, which are more kind of deeper uh, reflections on, uh, on politics, on history, on, on culture, uh, and uh, really a, a whole um, series of considerations uh, responding to some key profound questions about political change and political transformation. And uh, his notebooks have, you know, have been influential uh, ever since, especially since the 1970s when they were kind of discovered uh, through some translations in the Anglo-Saxon world. Maybe I can pass the button to, to John to, to uh, add anything that you would like to add. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the only thing I would add at this point on, on that is, you know, I think in terms of our previous question on education, you know, so he, yeah, his, his sort of first and early political work within the Italian Socialist Party was, as, as, a, as Nico was saying, as a journalist. And as a journalist for a newspaper of a political party, he was an educator, at least in adult education we would see him as a pedagogue or as an educator as he's doing his, the work, the, the work of a journalist of that nature is to educate. Like, well, and actually, I guess you could say the work of any journalist is to educate. And I think Gramsci would say that most journalists of mainstream press, what they do is they actually, to take Woodson's comment, uh, yeah. miseducate. Um, and so the role of a journalist, you know, I think Gramsci, you know, would see the role of a journalist of a newspaper of a political party as the role of an educator. Um, and so for me, I look at his, you know, because there's always this, you know, there's his pre-prison writings and then his prison writings as Nico, you know, was alluding to. The, for me, the interesting thing about the pre-prison writings is those, are, that's his political educational work going on. Now he did other educational, what we would consider as more um, identifiable as educational work where, you know, the um, training uh, work, uh, educational circles, uh, reading groups and that sort of thing that, you know, all sort of left political parties set up. Um, but the journalism was also educational work as well. So I, I think that's, um, um, for me at least, from adult education, I think it's important to highlight that. Yeah. So your responses to my earlier question, we've kind of been touching upon this idea that political education has a much greater value and importance than mere investing in technical skill and knowledge. And it's it goes beyond just your career. So um, as as you said, Nico, um, sort of learning how to rule or, or at least teaching those who do not rule how to rule. But that might that might be. Um, seem odd to certain people because they might say, well, we live in a, you know, we live in a democratic system. Would you say that they're sort of taking the representation um, ability of their system for granted, that it's not enough to merely live in a formal democracy? Like, why, why, how would you convince them that this political education is actually of any importance in a democracy? Well, um, uh, well to, to the first point about, you know, obviously not everybody uh, in, even in a perfect society, we'll be able to, to rule. But Gramsci, I think that the answer of Gramsci to that is that 
your education should at least enable to con to control who, those who rule, like to, to understand what the ruling class is actually mm. doing. Um, uh, which, uh, if you think of education as just acquiring technical skills or employability skills, narrowly focused on on the workplace, that's exactly what education doesn't do. You know, doesn't it, it's it's not it's not geared to actually. Uh, having that critical point of view of, of cutting through the masses of um, propaganda in a, you know, in a broader sense that we you know we receive uh, from from the ruling classes. Uh, but the other thing which is essential for I think for democratic uh, project is that um, the kind of education can broadly construed that Gramsci had in mind, was about deconstructing the whole uh, um, values and beliefs that we usually absorb quite uh, uncritically uh, yeah. as, 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 as mass of people from our social group, but also crucially from a dominant social group uh, to which we might not belong. So uh, I believe uh, that uh, the, the, the educational project that Gramsci had in mind it was also about acquiring those skills of, of deconstructing what he called you know, common sense. You know, this, this idea that this unspoken set of beliefs that um, often don't very much don't, don't serve the interests of the actually the majority of the population. Uh, and I was just going to say, you know, and I think there's a you know, a, a historical aspect of this, and actually Nico would, would be able to talk about this better than I would, I'll, I'll say it a little more, more generally, but, you know, I think, and there's, there's a lot of other intellectuals, political activists, revolutionaries, what have you, who, um, and even just mainstream intellectuals, who I think are trying to understand, you know, the emergence, the emergence of sort of um, institutions in the early part of the 20th century in um, more developed capitalist societies and trying to then figure out, you know, what role do these institutions play in, if you want to say sort of simple ways of sorting people into social groups and what is the role of ideas um, and thinking and consciousness um, or the lack thereof um, within these institutions, you know, so I think, you know, as Gramsci's talking about, um, as Nico was saying, you know, about common sense, how, how is that fostered and developed in these emerging institutions that are, that are sort of obviously governmental institutions, but then that are also, as Gramsci talks about, sort of more private institutions of civil, what he calls civil society. Um, and so, you know, I think you have like thinkers of the Frankfurt School who are looking at this, you know, even you could say even like Foucault later on, you know, looking at, um, you know, how, how individuals and subjects are shaped by these institutions. So I think, um, you know, Gramsci is sort of an early thinker and an analyst in terms of looking at, looking at that and schools are a major part of it. Yeah. And um, I, I, yeah, I, I think it's, it's very important the the idea of sort of investing in people the this kind of political critical capacity this understanding of how to engage with policy how to organize but 
many people may have the response that it's not really the place for the public sphere to offer this, that it's, you know, for the, for the state to um, offer a political education is something along the lines that, um, uh, you know, dictator, dictatorial regimes, the, you know, Soviet re-education camps, places like that will, um, will, you know, try to imbue value certain ways of thinking. Perhaps such people would say that more minimal um, approaches to political education that we're not, we're not, you know, we're going to allow kind of the marketplace of ideas and, the, you know, it's purely a private sphere thing. We're not going to, you know, get involved with this. The more minimal, the safer it is. What would your response to that sort of approach be? Okay, I'll, I'll go first. Um, so I, I think um, there must be there might be a, a misconception about what political education is, and I understand what you're saying, and I, I understand that what most people would think as political education. Uh, is a, a sort of course of study related to some specific political theories or ideologies, uh, tenets that, that uh, you know then other people can regurgitate. Uh, but I, I think in, you know in, in Gramscian terms, we we will think of education as something a bit broader than that, uh, and especially if we have in mind is a, a project of acquiring a critical conception of the world as a political tool. Uh, then you, you can see that how you know a number of other um, um, techniques and, and, and methods of, of, of approaching education contribute to the political uh, project. I think maybe I, I would start. You know, Jamie, when you were talking about you know sort of a free marketplace of ideas, you know, and that's 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 not that's not have that's not have politics sort of enter into education or schooling. Uh, because, you know, as you say, I mean, that, that would be inappropriate. That's not the role of a teacher to be a politician, right? Um, and I think, um, or a propagandist or what have you. And I think for Gramsci, schooling is inherently political. And, you know, this, for, you know, coming from adult education, that immediately has echoes of, you know, Paulo Freire. And I don't want to get into the whole Gramsci-Freire comparisons because then there are a lot of them, and, and appropriately so. Um, but you know, Gra I, you know, Gramsci understood that schooling was political, and that schooling um, played a role. And this sort of goes back to some things we were talking about earlier. But schooling plays a pretty significant role in the reproduction of social inequalities in society, both both in terms of both in terms of like the actual yeah. knowledge, skills, and dispositions that people learn uh, unequally based on, you know, the, here we always say the zip code you live in yeah. and therefore the like school you go to, et cetera. Yeah. yeah, all that. Um, but also in um, the sort of um, taken for granted what we talked about earlier, commonsensical notions that school professionals bring with them. And um, that uh, somewhat unconsciously, because it's just the water we swim in, sort of unconsciously shape the way people go about doing their schooling work as school professionals. Um, 
And so these commonsensical notions permeate all aspects of institutions like schools and many other institutions as well. And so they end up replicating the overall social inequalities that are at play in any given society. And so um, part of a Gramscian alternative approach to schooling is first of all, to recognize that and say, what we think we are, what we think is neutral, and what we think is of being neutral is actually being quite political. And the way it is political in the sense is that it sort of default favors the prevailing relations of a given society. So it maintains the status quo. And so that was a really key step, I think, for a you know for a Gramscian approach to education is to say what we think of as neutral is not neutral at all and favors certain groups over the others and the groups that favors are those who have more um, political, economic, social, cultural power in any given society. And so, you know, sort of step one is to recognize that. Um, step two, I think, is to challenge that. Um, and one of the things that I think we mentioned earlier was, um, you know, about who's ruling and so in a society where you have rulers and ruled, one key point that Gramsci, I think, really, really emphasizes is the need for the ruled to create their own institutions. Because the prevailing institutions in a given society favor the maintenance of the status quo, therefore favor the... Um, interests of the ruling class. And so there's really in the, yeah, it's in the prison notebooks. There's a really interesting sort of short uh, discussion that Gramsci goes into on, um, and I think Nico would know this better than me, but they were called popular universities at the mm. time. And they were oriented towards working class people. And you think, oh yeah, that, that's how they're popular. So that, and Gramsci was like, no way, you know, the, the, mm. these things suck, right? Because they're not, they're not institutions created by and for the working class. They're, they're for the working class in the sense that they're, they're aimed at the working class, but they're not developed by the working class. And so the working class needs its own institutions in order to really build an alternative form of education uh, for a working class that would be on the road to being a ruling class in a new society. I was just gonna ask if um, this kind of endeavor would not lead automatically to some sort of um, like enlightened paternalism in a sense, uh, wherein you know that working class group maybe could not, did, would not have either the resources or the knowledge due to you know generations of under education. Uh, to create their own structure. So would that not invite then a kind of other group which would have those things that they're lacking come in and develop it for them in a sense? Like could could a group of people who have been undereducated and have had this taken from them for generations be able to develop that on their own, do you think? Well, there's in, it, it's interesting because the way you said that, it's like there's a... There's a quotes right out of the yeah. prison notebooks that basically say exactly that, you know, that, you know, in a sense that, you know, our class, you know, the, the working class or the subaltern 
Um, yeah, precisely, right? Have a long history of not having access to those institutions that provide sort of basic uh, knowledge, skills, and dispositions to rule. And so, you know, he does talk about how this, this inevitably is a long-term project. Yeah. Um, and, and he, he always emphasized um, that the working class had to, and this is not unique to Gramsci, but you know, that the working class had to be the um, in, owners, so to speak, or in control of their own institutions precisely to prevent sort of any sort of paternalism. You know, and that, you know, when he talks about sort of more traditional intellectuals and the development of organic working class intellectuals, you know, when he talk, um, he says that it's very interesting as an academic, you know, because he says it's in these political organizations by, for, and of the working class in which traditional intellectuals interested in working with the working class can actually find a real utility for what they do. Um, there's a section in prison notebooks where he talks about those who know but don't feel and those who feel but don't know. And he's really talking about, you know, working class no, you know, feels its experience as working class yeah. and intellectuals who are not, are not of the class, they can know it, but they don't necessarily yeah. feel it. Intellectuals completely disconnected from their bodies. <laughs> yeah, so that this sort of, you know, The, the political party that was the key, not the only, but the sort of key institution for Gramsci um, is a place where, you know, academics, so to speak, can actually do something of a real utility um, when it's organically linked with these organizations and in their own interest. You know, and I think as academics, when we do our, you know, so-called outreach work or community service sort of work, we run into that. Like all of a sudden, you know, our ideas are so abstract, like, they, you know, they don't make sense to anybody. And, um, you know, I think Gramsci, you know, was well aware of that having gone to university for, you know, at least a few years and um, having those sort of intellectual academic interests and realizing how they really take shape and purpose when wedded to a political project for him of the, liberation of the working class. Can I add? Yeah, no, I just want to add very, very briefly uh, um, um, about you know, what Skander um, asked, because it's, it's an interesting question, because I think it also points to a little bit of a tension that there is within uh, what Gramsci writes, and, and I'd like to also hear your opinion about this. But there is a tension about direction and spontaneity when, when he talks about education in every context, whether it's education of a child but, or, or the education of, of, a, of, of a class. And so to what extent you should, uh, you should uh, let people kind of learn for themselves? Uh, do they have the instrument to do that? And to what extent you should direct them you know, in certain, in, you know, towards a certain um, position? Um, and um, I'm not. I'm not sure that that tension is always is is, is a, at any point resolved within Gramsci, but um, I think that the danger of uh, of 
the political education being too directive, I think, is mitigated by what John mentioned about you know, once the working class is in control of uh, these education institutions, then I think there is less of a danger or, or, or just mm -hmm. education becoming sim simple kind of indoctrination uh, of, of you know, brainwashing about a certain kind of political ideology. But sort of and, and also I want to just go back to, to what also John said and, and about your question, Jamie, that you should probably be quite naive to think that the actual school system is not political education. It is political education, uh, but it's not the kind of political education that people usually think of it, you know, with that term in terms of the yeah, obscure ideology. But when I when I observe what um, uh, is a school setting where you know, my daughter goes to high school in England, and I, I have a little bit of distance for that because I was educated in a different country, so I, I, I can kind of look at it with a little bit of kind of fresh eyes, and I can see how the bodies and mind are conditioned and disciplined towards a certain outcome, which is to fit in the society as it is actually at the moment, not really to change it, even though there's a lot of talk about equipping students to change society, but it, I, I don't see that happening very much. Yeah, yeah if even just the A-level system for me is a perfect example of, of that, of, um, of kind of restricting students' minds from the get-go. I mean, like I've always been very grateful for my Belgian system of education because I feel like it was very um, comprehensive. And from my first year of education to my last, we basically were taught almost every mm. like subject possible. So in my final year of school, for example, I was still taking something like 12, 13 subjects, including things like gym health, um, philosophy, French, Dutch, English, um, history, geography, physics, maths, you know, like the whole kind of package that you think about. And of course, it's not perfect. I would have still preferred to have, for example, like one class on civic education, yeah. things like that. Right. But I always saw systems such as the UK one or even the French one, I think kind of does this too, where they, they focus in my view, but too much like, um, you know, the employability thing that we were talking earlier about earlier, they kind of focus like, okay, so you can finish your whole high school years by just doing like three, three subjects, but then you end up with people who aren't interested in, in other languages because they haven't been doing them for enough years in their like, you know, late teenage years. You end up with people not interested in history, maybe because they've only done math, physics, chemistry. And you end up with people, et cetera. They're, they're so specialized in these certain subjects and they kind of identify with those like, well, I'm a, I'm a yeah. historian. You know? And in a sense, it's kind of the, for me, at least I see as the British like obsession with kind of starting your professional life as early as possible. And just like the hustle, the, uh, yeah. you know, the, you got to get that money, got to start your career, got to go to university. Yeah. Like it's, yeah, like, I don't know. Choosing your A-levels at such an early age, it's like you're basically not not entirely it's not you know set in stone but you you're more or less deciding yeah. your career at that point should we so do you guys think we should maybe leave that room for children because at the end of the day they're still children like up to 18 people are still kids should we not let that kind of be a place of learning and discovery rather than already you know centering them towards a path i i think that that definitely links with um the gramsci's discussion on the other kind of school reform 
uh, in Italy at, at his, in his own time. Uh, and obviously it's a, it's a century ago, but some of the issues are, are, are you know, resonant with, you know, with the actual situation today, because what he observed at that time was that how the children of the working class or lower middle class were channeled towards an education that was about learning certain specific skills and maybe even seen in a kind of positive way because you could uh, um, upskill up yourself compared to your to the previous generation. So you, you know, instead of become a worker, you could become a qualified worker or a skilled worker. Um, but, but then uh, what was happening to the children of the ruling classes is that they were going to the to the lycée, to the you know, sort of grammar schools where they would learn history, they would learn uh, through the study of Latin, they would earn hermeneutics, how to, you know, how to interpret all texts, and they would have those other skills, which were the skills about interpreting and understanding the world that eventually, because of, the, of how um, education was kind of subdivided by a class, would only belong to, to the specific uh, um, children of a specific class. And I think that, that resonates still with me uh, today in, diff in different yeah. ways. Um, I know it's been an hour. Um, if you, you can go now if you like, of course, but uh, I, I do have two specific questions for you. Uh, one, one for you specifically, John. Um, so if, uh, if you... Oh, I can yeah, talk about that. Your audience. I have, I have a, I have a couple of questions as well that I want to relate to maybe like today's world and especially just a little environmental question, just uh, so we stay within the top, our general topic of yeah. environment. <laughs> yeah. So this is sort of a, a new area. I'm sort of, I'm trying to get to grips with is like, what is the first step? You know the step between the ideal, uh, you know, self-determinant work, work pro-working class society from where we are today, and so if we can't trust the state in a, in a in a capitalist state or a, a state that is not necessarily pro-working class, we can't trust them to supply the sufficient political education required for the working class to engage with politics on the on an appropriate level. As you're saying, the, the working class will have to start establishing their own institutions. And I'm guessing that's sort of in the, well, it's, it's sometimes not useful to say private public sphere, but, you know, on their own. Um, and I, this might be getting a bit technical, but I wonder how such a project would be successful, because given their... Um, comparatively, like much less resources available to them. Um, and, and, you know, they're going against the status quo ideology and you can, you can think that um, the ruling class has so much more, I don't know how to say it, propaganda capital at its disposal. It, it, it seems, and, you know, they, they will probably crack down on such institutions, try to delegitimize them. It's like how, what, what sort of, what sort of makes it kind of a losing battle? Because I, I understand they're not, you know, it's not too... They're not the same sort of institutions fighting each other. Um, but yeah, like, uh, so I suppose, what is the general strategy for, for making such a project successful? Uh, well, I, I can take a first stab at that one. I mean, I think, I think one thing is um, what, you know, it's a really good question. Um, there's this, 
um, what one thing about it is, well, what's the particular historical national um, context we're talking about? Um, I think for Gramsci, um, and I'm, you know, there could be like, well, what, what was Gramsci and his colleagues or comrades, you know, doing at the time? Um, I, I do think this gets in a little bit, I think, to his concepts of uh, war of a maneuver and war of position and mm. thought of sort of simply in terms of like revolutionary strategy. Um, and these are military terms. I'm, I don't have a lot. I don't have a military background. So, you know, if you're a soldier, you probably pick up on those right away. Um, but for Gramsci, you know, the war of maneuver was sort of the, you know, the quick assault on the uh, institutions of power and takeover um, to create a new society. And war position was that, what we were talking about earlier, that long-term project of building mm. alternative institutions and at the same time, part and parcel of that building alternative worldviews, uh, counter-hegemony as people have oftentimes talked about it. Um, and so I think there, there is the strategy uh, and reality of building alternative institutions. And, you know, we, we have actual examples of that, right, of organizations creating, you know, historically and contemporary, you know, creating alternative schools. And I'm, I'm thinking not so much, I'm not thinking so much in terms of like, like here in the US, we talk about charter schools. I think they have a different name in the UK um, where it's sort of like private. And there's been projects like that um, where people try and create um, quasi publicly funded alternative schools that supposedly are oriented towards particular um, marginalized groups in society. Um, but like more so of, you know, creating weekly study groups and creating alternative uh, schools for kids on weekends, et cetera. You can think of it here in the US, you think of the Black Panther Party and the um, breakfast programs they started and the alternative um, non-formal educational work they did. Um, so there's that. There's also though, you know, for Gramsci hegemony hegemony was always contested within the institutions of state and civil society. And so there was also the idea of, and I think maybe, and Nico might have a better sense of this, I think maybe we now take this side of, up, of it up a little bit more than maybe Gramsci did. But, you know, working within the institutions of civil, the civil society and the state to push them in certain directions that you know you can you can enter the school system and you can create certain alternatives there's space within them particularly when they're linked with outside organizations that are pushing from the outside so just a real concrete example here right now in the US um, there's real there's really significant efforts to build a black lives matter curriculum and so you know it's based in the movement but it's also entering into the school systems and making demands on the school systems to really, really significantly transform the curriculum so that Black Lives Matter in schools, literally in the curriculum and in, you know, 
Um, and so I think that's an, that's an instance of this sort of insider outsider strategy as people have talked about that I think, I think fits within a Gramscian framework and I'll stop there. I can add something to it. Um, just, just, I mean, you covered a lot, John, and, and I completely agree with what you said. Uh, it's definitely about creating independent spaces for for learning, and and this can go from a whole uh, independent school to a to a book club. You know, obviously, you know, the, 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 and all and everything in in between. Uh, but I just want to add that uh, I think Gramsci also, because he, he conceptualized education in a kind of very broad way, he also saw self-organizing uh, as a form of, of, of education. And, and, and um, in his own time, he, he witnessed the rise of the workers' councils in, in, uh, in the factories of Turin, which took over the factories for, for a period of, of few months. And, and you saw them as, as great kind of laboratories for, for the education of the working class, for that education that prepares uh, the working class to, you know, to, to, to rules or to control the rules, rulers. So I think, um, uh, and you know, if I think about um, say um, Extinction Rebellion and you know, they have local chapters, so this thing in London, you can go to Hackney, there is Extinction Rebellion Act, Acne and they and they meet and they and they self-organize uh, and you know, these these are these are spaces for education as well you know and uh, and there are a number of, obviously as you said Jamie a number of ways in which uh, the government uh, and the whole the whole kind of ruling system tries to curb those initiatives so it's 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 we have to be aware of that I and mean, it's a constant. Uh, effort you know to counter that yeah. just a side note actually this um well the the original listeners the, the real ones will will, <laughs> will remember but uh, this podcast actually started as an extinction rebellion podcast um a while back almost a year ago actually wow that went fast i didn't even realize um we started as a lancaster university extinction rebellion podcast and then moved to our own project when uh, when we realized that we felt a bit held back by the by both names uh, a little bit, even though we, we appreciate both. Um, I, I just wanted to quickly ask within that kind of thought, um, what do you think, because you said that Gramsci lived within a period of time where he got to see the, um, what was it called, the worker councils? Well, one thing that happened, you know, a couple of decades or a few decades after, after Gramsci, which he didn't get to see um, is of course the internet. And the internet can be a wonderful place, can be a horrendous place as well, but it has a lot of potential at the end of the day, I think, for, and I think no one can deny that, a lot of potential for learning and for education, but also for miseducation, right? Um, I was wondering what your thoughts were on maybe how Gramsci would view the internet, uh, its potential, and like how we could integrate that within his kind of ideas of education. If that's something you guys have had a bit of thought about, I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll say one thing, and this may, may make me sound like a dinosaur, but um, uh, and it's not an area I, I thought of a whole lot, but you know, Gramsci took 
the sort of communication technology of his time. I'm like gone on a limb here with this analysis, but maybe it makes some sense. But you know, the role of the newspaper media in his time, I mean, he saw that as a really, I mean, that was like his, I, I don't know, Nico, I mean, could, do you think you could say that was like his major activity in his, you know, b- before being in prison was really the development and work on uh, what you could say alternative media, the news, the newspaper, the, mm. um, and they had like a lot of them, you know, the socialist parties, they had, you know, they had local and regional and the communist media. So he, I think you could say he was big on alternative media as a, as an educational tool. Now, does that translate exactly to the internet? That, yeah. That's where I'm. I, Would I, Gramsci I, have been a podcaster? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, I, I, I just want to add that uh, I think in, in several occasions Gramsci mentioned also the uh, educational uh, um, contribution that having workers involved in kind of journalistic activity would have on workers. Uh, so I, I think, you know, relating that to the internet, I think that would translate in uh, uh, in, in, in exactly the same thing, in, in, in having uh, a way of producing and, dis- and disseminating material on the internet, which is not only produced by a sort of educated elite, uh, which probably comprise the people here today on this podcast, but but what but you know uh, uh, people from from you know from the working class uh, and reflecting exactly you know the, the kind of struggles and that uh, that occur you know, in, in the workplace and, and, and so on. So I, I, I was probably translate this into a kind of more kind of participative internet um, and we can speculate what Grant went thought about that. But <laughs> uh, John, I'd like to ask more about um, your your ideas on um, adult education within this context of political education, because that's so- something I haven't really considered properly. Because when when I think of adults' roles in this sort of Gramscian project, it's sort of organizing, you know, yes, talking, discussing, um, but. Um, education is quite for them is quite striking to me because I I normally just think about well how how are children still developing their ideas developing how they think about politics Um, they're they're sort of the main focus and it it seems like it might be quite at least initially a very challenging idea Um, people who have already um, had life experiences they've already developed their approach to politics and I, I so I wonder in what way um, you you see um, educating adults as as sort of possible and and what what are, what are the objectives? Um, yeah, that that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, some of it gets into you know, is there really a distinction between the teaching and learning of adults and the teaching and learning of children, and that's sort of an ongoing debate. And mm. so that that's for a, a different podcast or maybe just to never never mention again I don't know because it's such an ongoing debate but um you know I think what I really picked up on in your question was this idea of the experiences um and again you know experiences extend from you know the day we're born maybe even before to you know to the day we die um but 
you know, and I think for Gramsci, that was one of the key things. So, I mean, his, his educational work was with adults mainly, even though he's his like so-called educational writing that people identify as educational writing is about his children and his nephews and schooling and school reform and stuff that was going on in Italy. But his actual political work was educational work with working class adults. Um, and so I think, I think one of the key things there was getting people to critically, adults, getting adults to critically reflect on their own experience. Um, and to, you know, back to that idea of the thinking and the feeling that edu adult education is most powerful when it's a, and again, you know, the, the thinking idea of the sort of more abstract intellectual work and the feeling, if we can sort of apply that to the lived experience and lived realities of working class people, that it becomes the most powerful when those are combined. In other words, when you have a critical reflection on your lived reality. Um, so it's not like, you know, so it's not like, um, it's not like poor people or working class people don't know they're, they're working class, that they're poor, et cetera. But the, the why question, why, why, why are things the way they are? That to me is sort of the starting point for um, a Gramscian adult education. So it's like going beyond like a merely instructive yeah. education. I guess it's more like yeah. And al although you know, I think we've talked about this, and this was part of the you know the 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 factory councils. You know, this idea that technical skill um, and technical knowledge was actually really important for Gramsci. You know, and so you know, mm. one thing is if if working class people ought to be, should be ruling in the workplaces because they're the ones doing the work. Well, they need actually, they need those sort of managerial skills, not to become the new bosses, but to like, you know, how do you run a factory? You know, if, yeah. you know, yeah. you need a sort of a broad perspective on, you know, how the whole process works, it's interrelation with other uh, productive units or factories, et cetera, you know, becomes really pretty complex. And so that skill is necessary as well. Um, so he, he tried to sort of combine those. There's the one of like, you know, why are things the way they are? And if we are to rule, well, how um, we would need certain knowledge and skills that we don't necessarily get from our social position. So this, yeah. And, I'm just wondering, because I'm thinking about what what exactly is being worked towards. So perhaps on the more ideal long-term end of the spectrum, how sort of decentralized is this political system supposed to be? Because nowadays we have this sort of political elite of experts, political experts, um, and, you know, they're, they're highly trained in political me mechanisms and negotiations. And that's somewhat 
a reasonable idea to have people train, you know, that they will go through the educational institutions for the sole um, end goal of being a political expert. But obviously not everyone can be a political expert. So, but then on the other hand, it's useful to have people who have devoted all their time to be political experts. But then again, it, you know, ex such experts may become alienated from their original um, origins, even if they are from a working class background. So on this ideal end, how sort of decentralized, how much of a gap should there be between this um, political elite and um, normal workers who, are, who would hopefully, you know, still be to some appropriate degree involved in politics? Nico, you want to tackle that one? I, I, I'm not sure I have a full answer for that, but I, I think Gramsci, like um, most Marxists, would envisage a society in which workers have more control of, of production or control production and by being more involved in, in production, they're also more involved in the political choices that pertain to that, to that community. Um, so I, I think once you start that process of workers being more in control, then it's, it's a process of also decentralization of political decision-making and uh, there's a, a there's a whole strand of literature now about how the firm is a political entity. Mm. So that, so once you enter the workplace, you enter uh, a political setting uh, in which there's a certain structural power of decision making, and this setting is usually not very democratic, you know, because you're at the mercy of one mm. yeah. line manager or, or the or CEO of the company uh, decides. Um, so I think if we, again, if we have politics, if we have a notion of power to include not only what we think of kind of political institutions like, you know, the parliament or, or the government, but to include also the institution that we, we attend to like daily, then we can, we can see more of that uh, gap, I think, reduced. That's, that, that's the thought that comes to my mind. So potentially, would it, would it be good if we had political experts ideally drawn from, in a representative way from the whole of society? We had those experts, but it's about tying them to the workers, I don't know, like through, through a high level of accountability and through trade unions having their own control. It's sort of like tying them further down to those who aren't political experts per se. Would, would you think that would be... Uh, uh, desirable. Yes, uh, and at the same time, you know, in a, in a different setting in which there would be more control from below, those political experts would have less uh, uh, discretionary power than they actually have now because yeah. now they're less accountable in the system we have now. So they'd slowly just take on a more administrative role, perhaps. Uh, yeah. Yes, I, yeah, I, I would agree to that, yeah. Yeah, and there's an interesting um, in like in the factory occupations that were taking well, and they're still taking place in Argentina. And I remember reading 
you know, after the economic crisis there. And so then there was these abandoned factories that workers were taking over. And I remember reading an account, um, you know, and, it, and they faced the real practical problem of how do we administer an entire factory, right? And how do we link it up with other factories? Because while we produce, you know, we produce tiles for flooring and bathroom walls, et cetera, but we need the materials to actually produce those. You know, the, you can just start, you can take one, you can start imagining yeah. all the inter, interlocking institutions, et cetera. But I remember about this administrative thing, I remember, you know, as they actually got their hands on like the accounting books and stuff, and they had some help of, you know, figuring out how to read them, you know, one of the things, it was really funny because one of the things they were, in, you know, they were saying like, what a, what a wasteful cost the bosses were for the yeah. for the factory you know like when you when you creamed off the sort of administrative um sector it was like my god you know it's like how much of the money was actually going for this layer who were if if done democratically weren't necessary weren't really necessary um you know, we, now we're really getting into, you know, the specifics of, you know, organizing particular institutions and stuff. Um, and I, I did want to just sort of draw in, you know, I think one thing as, you know, you think about workers control, well, one, it's like, how do we define the working class? And I think oftentimes we have a very narrow definition of working class that I think should, should be much broader. Um, so like in the States, yeah. you know, I, I always draw on people who, you know, we think about the working class and it's really, you know, 60, 65% of the population. So it is the vast majority of people. Like, you know, it's not just manual factory work laborers, you know. Um, the other thing is, I think, you know, one thing about democratic control of, of workplaces is then also today what would really be fundamental in sort of getting to the main theme, I think, of your podcast, if I understand, is like, how then would you think about production in a environmentally sustainable or enriching way? I think that would be, you know, and I don't know if that was, you know, I don't know that that was really on the agenda in Gramsci's time, although maybe, maybe it was, I'm just not sure, you know, in terms of environmental justice of what these factories are doing to the working class communities in which they were placed, but that would definitely be a really major agenda item for today. Um, yeah, I, w I wish every guest gave us segues as, as good as this. <laughs> doing the segues for us. It's, yeah, they're doing the segues for us. It's perfect. Um, no, I really appreciate that insight. I, it reminds me a lot of this book that I, I always love to plug because I, it's one of my favorites. It's called Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Lalu. It's um, genuinely changed the way that I, I see organizations and, and workplaces. Um, and he goes in a lot of depth on this kind of idea of democratic control, like horizontal control of of, um, of factories and workplaces. He, he gives examples from like this um, metallurgical factory in, in France uh, that, for example, yeah, the, the CEO decided, so this was actually like a top to bottom decision. The CEO the incoming decided to change the whole factory's um, organization into basically groups of 20 workers for one group for each uh, car manufacturer. So for example, there would be a Toyota group that would take orders from Toyota specifically, 
And within that group, that group would self-organize to choose one of the workers um, to take care of the accounts or one of the workers to take care of like um, machine upkeeping or HR, you know? So they they actually managed to wipe out their HR, um, their a whole HR department. They managed to wipe out their whole like accounting department and instead give those tasks to workers who were already working, but like democratically chose to do this. Um, and like you said, they found out that they were wasting millions every year in total on on these ridiculous kind of departments and bosses and extra like managerial layers. And when you take it all away, they managed to, to thrive so well that they're the only um, factory of their kind of what they produce, which are uh, gear gear forks for, for cars. They're the only factory of its kind left in Europe. All the other ones have moved to China because it's cheaper. They're the only one in Europe and they control more than half of the market now because of their amazing working conditions. They haven't had a late order in 50 years. Uh, it's like, it's it's a real, really amazing example. Um, but uh, but yes, to, to segue like you have on, on the environmental aspect, I think it's a lot of people, well, I hope a lot of people might, say or understand the climate crisis and the environmental crisis in general is one of if not the uh most important issue that mankind as a group has ever faced as a species um especially because of its conflict multiplier effect the fact that it can it can take any issue any problem and just worsen it by by a, a huge huge kind of factor um like, for example, you know, a lot of people say the civil war in Syria was uh, in part caused by this, by climate change. We know that poverty will be worsened by climate change, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, I, and on the other side of that, I know that a lot of people around the world are still very either uneducated about climate change environment or miseducated, right? I, I guess there are very two very different things um how the for for me climate change education is so difficult because as you get more and more in depth into the topics you realize that a lot of the time there are solutions but they're just not being they're not they're not being adopted because of political reasons uh, oftentimes for example like we've heard really great arguments on this show for um degrowth and de-energization um, but those things are not really in line with capitalist growth models, right? And so the capitalist system would rather try to force in things like electric cars, where you have one person have one car, but just make them all electric, even though we don't have enough rare earth minerals to produce the batteries for that, um, rather than, you know, to create, let's say, a holistic transport, public transport system. So how do we, how do we educate people i guess um into to to becoming climate change activists or, or at least people who care about this kind of topic without without um getting into the political side where you know where we advocate for degrowth or for, or maybe that is necessary i don't know basically my, my question is basically how what your thoughts are on on the political education side of things but in regards to environment and climate change can like I start on that? Um, oh well, I was kind of 
link it back to to Gramsci because we were talking about that. Uh, well, obviously, this was not a question that was on the political horizon of of Gramsci in his time. I mean, it would have been you know, anachronistic to uh, to think of that. And uh, um, and the other thing is that uh, being a, a person of his time, Gramsci actually was someone who saw kind of industrial progress in a kind of positive light. He, you know, he, he saw this kind of transformation from a kind of rural cultural order uh, to a more kind of urban industrial order with, you know, with uh, a population moving from the rural setting to industrial setting. He saw it as something positive, fundamentally. Uh, but obviously within a different framework from the capitalist framework that he observed in his time, uh, he saw there's something that would open the way for, you know, for socialism and uh, with uh, workers not anymore being exploited in, you know, in, in the factory under, under private property, but, you know, uh, producing an institutional workers control, okay? So, uh, but uh, I think what what we can do is, is to think about this problem in a kind of in a Gramscian way, you know. So it, it, you won't find any direct answers in his, in his work, but you can find a method by by which you can address the the uh, the, the problem. Um, surely, you know, uh, coming from his um, point of view, uh, he he would. Uh, uh, recognize capital accumulation as a as a as a driver of that excessive use of of resources uh, he saw very much the world as a product of human action of, of human uh, history uh, so um, I, I think you know one aspect of um, educating people to 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 the climate crisis is to historicize the presence. How 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 do how, how do we get here? You know, um, what was the you know the past that led us to this um, crisis? So that's one one aspect of it. But the, the very big question, which I think would uh, would be helpful to look uh, through ground, is how do we build an environmental movement that becomes hegemonic? Uh, that uh, so how do we uh, change that uh, narrative that dominant ideological narrative that right now uh, is you know it's the one you described uh, in, in, in very essential such of terms uh, so I think Graham should give us a set of tools to think about this you know, in the sense of capturing the consent of uh, of the majority of the population to move in a different direction to the one we are we are in now, uh, to that kind of war position uh, that John was mentioning, that is kind of uh, capturing educational institutions, creating alternative spaces, uh, uh, changing the discourse in the media. But he saw it very much as a as a slow process, and I think maybe the the question here is that. How much time do we have for that process to to unfold? You know, um, because you can see you can see sign that uh, some, the discourse is changing. You know, there is more awareness. Uh, there, there are more and more kind of segment of with both in the business community and 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 um, and politics that 
that have a certain awareness of the economic crisis, even though the answers to that differ um, very much. Uh, so yeah, so it's, it's a matter of speed, and I think that's an important question to address. Uh, and then there is a matter of coalitions, which that's another thing that Gramsci was very keen to emphasize when you talk about historical blocks. Uh, you can't change that hegemonic structure without building coalitions with other social forces. Um, and so how, you know, you can think about this in terms of how, how do we bring organized labor, you know, into the, into environmental politics, you know, yes. And there's been some, you know, you know all the efforts with the Green New Deal and so on, there's been some effort with that. I think in these are question marks, you know, like the speed of this changing mind or, or changing the consciousness of people and the coalitions that we can build. Yeah, and the only I, you know, the only thing that I would add to that is the, you know, for me, some of the really interesting political social movement work being done around the environment is in, I'm thinking, well, not just in the U.S., but you know, in Black and Brown and working class communities. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about, for example, in Detroit, um, in coal country here in Appalachia, you know, where in, you know, in climate crisis, environmental destruction and environmental sustainability is a working class issue. It's just, it's a, it's a working class survival issue. You know, if we don't have access to clean water, like the, like thousands of people don't have in, in say Detroit, and Detroit's just the most glaring example in the US, it's just one example. Um, you know, that I think, be, you know, Gramsci basing himself in the working class, you know, I think that has relevance for today too, in terms of who's most impacted by climate crisis. Um, and so I think as a certain sort of starting point or standpoint within all of what Nico said, I think is a, a sort of a Gramscian way to think about that. Yeah, I mean, we saw in, in Texas recently when the, the polar vortex kind of just uh, seeped through the US and and yet you could see from the pictures, it was just clear cut, like there's no need even for, you know, studies to be done on this. You can just see it from the pictures that, um, that the center of, of uh, Texan cities were completely lit up with with uh, with lights for for you know advertisement boards and things like that for street lights in the center of the city, um, very obviously where all the money is. And then in the suburbs and the the poorer areas, it was all just dark, and people reported not having electricity even for for things like uh, medical uh, stuff. I, I've seen the amount of reports I've seen of of people, for example, dying because they didn't have uh, their respirators couldn't couldn't handle the power outages i mean it's it's horrendous to think of that while while an advertisement board is up on main street you know um and completely lit up 24 7 so yeah i think there's there's a real question about who this issue impacts and we we talked about this with uh, actually on our first episode with uh, sharon burrow who's the uh, general secretary of the international trade union confederation and she was really great in like explaining it to us the importance of a just transition that includes workers. And I think this is maybe like related to what we've talked before also about, which is that 
um, even if like even if you are a worker who doesn't really realize the impacts of climate change, it doesn't mean that you should get left behind. Um, and I, I see a lot of that going on these days as a sort of almost like a hatred towards these workers that aren't mindful of climate change or aren't educated in that way. And it's like this kind of knee-jerk reaction of like, oh, you don't understand it and you don't believe in it. Well, you know, screw you then. Like you have to, you're going to have to deal with the the impact. Like you're not helping us. You have to deal with the impact. But it's the, this like lack of, of awareness that, that a lot of people grew up with, you know, a set of cards handed to them. And then, and a lot of people, if they don't know or realize the climate change, the climate crisis happening, a lot of the time it's due to education. I I know that we are running out of time. Um, it's been a super amazing discussion. I, I've honestly learned already so much. Uh, Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Want to have uh, this, but weekly. Uh, there's <laughs> so many. <laughs> but could literally talk about this all day. Yeah. Um, but we are running a little bit out of time. I want to, um, Jamie, is, are there any like final questions that you'd like to ask? I really, I really want to, but it's going <laughs> to take, you know, oh God, I was time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 at least sure. like, I think so. For sure. You guys are uh, very obviously invited already. Yeah. I'm definitely going to look into your guys' work for my um, uh, dissertation later on. So uh, uh, maybe after that. Yes. This brings us to our, our little closing uh, thing, which, yeah, our, our closing uh, segment is usually now a, a book recommendation. And yeah, there you go. For those yeah. of us listening who, uh, yeah. <laughs> if you're listening and you can't see the camera, then um, Nico is holding a copy of Antonio Gramsci, A Pedagogy to Change the World by our two guests here. Um, so can you maybe tell us uh, just very quickly, I know, we're running out of time, but um, what the book covers in brief, um, and um, maybe if this is like an entry book, or if there's another kind of book that you'd recommend for entry level. Um, you know, I, I think I actually think the book is does work as a as an entry book. Um, I'm not just saying it because I want to, you know, get on the Oprah show and sell millions of copies around. <laughs> I do think there's a certain, you know, like I was actually sort of rereading segments, you know, in preparation for today, you know, and I, um, so the, the main goal of the book, obviously it's, it's, it's highlighting, um, Gramsci's work in, uh, on education schooling. And then as we've talked about political education, more broadly in adult education, and then introduces the scholarship that's been done in those areas as well. Um, for me, one of the really exciting things about the book and working on the book, what for me, I, I don't speak Italian, which is, you know, shameful for someone who writes on Gramsci. So it's really embarrassing to admit that. Um, but, um, it introduces an, uh, English speaking audience or English reading audience to a whole body of Italian scholarship on Gramsci and education with that frankly I mean I sort of kind of knew it was there but not to the extent that uh, Nico introduces it in the first chapter and then you see actual examples of those uh, scholars um, Italian scholars uh, in the book and then you know it 
it has a certain international scope to it, but there's um, contributions from uh, Latin America and um, Europe, the US, uh, et cetera. So I don't know. Unfortunately, I will need to go very soon. So I think I think that you you really cover enough, John. So I, I think that's that's quite clear. Yeah. All right. Thank you, both of you. Thank you so much, uh, John Horst, Nico. Pisolato. Thanks so much for the invitation. It was really fun. Yeah. Very fun to, to discuss with can, you and interesting. Yeah, I hope we can so uh, get to talk to you guys a bit more at some other time, and uh, maybe even do some of our famous infographics on maybe some of your shorter works, because I don't think a whole book can fit into an infographic. But <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Maybe it's a challenge. All right. All right. Thank Great. you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, would love. To. Thanks so much. It's really been really been. Nice to do this, and I really appreciate the invitation.